0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 98 of Task Force
1: 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis, along with my co-host, the CISO of Siena, Andy Vanillo. I want to emphasize all opinions expressed in the show on my own. I'm not my president or past employers. I won't disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to or as well to my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any class of information related to any security clearances that I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So, again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, Pedram Amini was uh, on the show with us last week. He's the Chief Technology Officer of InQuest. And I got to tell you, it was episode 90- 97, and we're almost to 100 right now. And it was one of our best episodes I mean, he gave TF7 radio listeners something to listen to. I and mean, he gives, he, you know, we talked about the inside view of the world of a hacker. And he started off by defining a hacker and a vulnerability and an exploit. He just really wanted to level set the conversation to make sure that we're all using the same terminology that we understood. We went over reverse engineering and fuzzing, which is cool. And then after we gave our audience that foundation for the discussion, in the second and third segments of the show, we got into the real specifics regarding the economics of the underground vulnerability markets, which a lot of people aren't aware of, right? And when they hear, you know, how these markets really work and how the economics, you know, impacts of, of these markets impacts their daily lives, you know, light bulbs go off, right? And really what's going on out there. And I wanted to ask him with his expertise, what are the hardest and easiest platforms to compromise? And he gave us a detail on that, which I'm sure a lot of people are interested in that as well. And that's something that people often wonder. And then, he look, he's had some really good things, good good, uh, good startups. He's had some really good companies. And we wanted to really talk to him about how he launched these companies and how he exited uh, specifically on Jumpshot. And then we talked to him, of course, what he does today at InQuest, you know, from a career perspective, because a lot of people like to hear that from a career path uh, perspective on what he does and, and how it might align to uh, their life and maybe get some ideas on what they need to do. So, We wrapped up the dialogue providing some insight into the risk associated with emerging technologies like self driving cars and the dangers of cyber warfare and the capabilities of nation state actors in the world and the ever so important topic of election security, which we talk about often on the show. Very good show. I mean, it got a lot of play last week. He's a true professional. Amini is a true professional. He's a subject matter expert, undoubtedly a tier one guy uh, in this space. If you missed the show, Make sure you go back and listen to it, folks. He's really, really good. You can always catch us on Playback, on your favorite Playback medium. It's right at the top of your TF7 radio playback library right now if you're listening to the show. Um, It should be, like, maybe number one or number two, maybe number three at the top of the library there. You can't miss it. Don't miss Pedro Mamini, Chief Technology Officer of Enquest on last week's episode. That's episode number 97 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to Voice of America right now, or maybe just someone sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 episodes on Playback. Just go to your new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the Episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And, of course, we have our news section as well where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio, and you can write comments and interact with everybody that listens to the show. So it's a lot of fun. We're on at least 12 different playback mediums now, and we made it easy for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio website, which is really the best way to stay connected to the extended TF7 family. This way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 Extras, the Encore episodes. We're gonna probably blast one next week. And like the one we'll be posting you know, very, very soon, I think for, for, for Labor Day coming up. So uh, we got a holiday coming up, it lands on a Monday, so we won't be broadcasting live. We'll probably have another on, Encore episode for that day because uh, the producers have the day off. And then you also get TF7 news and events and other information coming up on the TF7 network as well. So that's very cool. Check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So uh, we got another awesome guest for you this week. And I'm really excited. Uh, we just we just keep turning it out here, man. Week after week after week. I got to say, I mean, I don't want to sound pretentious, but nobody does it like we do. I don't really care what they say. I mean, we've been turning out guests after guest after guest for nearly 100 episodes now. And ladies and gentlemen, the hits just keep on coming, right? We just keep on doing it, keep on getting the tier one guest out here, changing the topics, keeping it interesting, and giving you new content every single week. Uh, so we're going to have IT Security Program Manager at KII Partners, Jamal Hartenstein, on the show with us this evening. And Jamal is a special guest because he has dedicated a significant portion of his life protecting and serving this great land that we are blessed to live in. And he served in the United States military as in a military intelligence uh, uh, corps and, arm, and army officer, and he's also armed with a law degree. And he has built a reputation – as one of America's foremost data privacy and cybersecurity legal experts. He's all over the place out there, right? He's, he's, he's been published, he appears all the time at speaking events. Um, he's, he, he speaks at all the majors, uh, all the major conferences. And he, his job is to really provide direction to global financial institutions, healthcare companies, military installations, federal and state agencies in developing and implementing their cybersecurity strategies. So he's worked with a variety of different people in a variety of different verticals and sectors, and he, what he does is he takes this blended military intelligence principles that he learned from his experience in the military, with his, and he blends it with his legal acumen, um, and then a the deep understanding of IT security frameworks, of course, to develop unique solutions for his clients. So he's very, very uh, astute in this area, a tier one professional for sure. So it's time, folks. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, IT Security Program Manager at KAI Partners, Jamal Hartenstein. Jamal, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio.
2: Thank you much. Pleasure to be here.
1: Hey, I'm glad you're on with us. I know you're a busy guy. I'm glad that we uh, had the chance to hook up here. Um, This is going to be a great show. I can't wait to to talk to you about a variety of different things. But you have such an interesting background, and I talked a little bit about you in the, the beginning of the segment and about you know, where you came, a little bit about your bio, but could you give us sort of like the 60-second uh, version of your background and how you became involved in cybersecurity?
2: Sure. So I joined the U.S. Army Military Intelligence Corps, and military intelligence took me right down into this rabbit hole of uh, encryption technologies, uh, direction finding, uh, intelligence collection, and after the Army, I started doing similar work but for the Department of Defense. And I was involved in joint task forces uh, all over the world and decided I'd like to come back to the United States. Got involved in healthcare and financial industries. And uh, then decided, you know what, I, I think I'd like to go to law school. And now I kind of match up uh, you know, my legal background with my uh, cybersecurity background. And um, those are conflicting in many ways, but uh, it's an interesting dichotomy. And I like to, you know, attack solutions using both.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, do you find that a lot of people combine those backgrounds in your space? I mean, is that common? I mean, I know we have a lot of, not a lot, but I've, we've, on the show, we've had a lot of people talk about cybersecurity and they are attorneys and they usually talk about you know, the data security and privacy issues that are going on in the industry today. But is this common? I mean, you have such a unique
2: background. So it's not common yet. Um, Some people think it might be becoming common because the organization IAPP has the uh, data privacy certification, which is recognized by the American Bar Association. But data privacy and cybersecurity are very different, and there is not yet a designation for a cybersecurity attorney like there is for a data privacy attorney. Um, I like to call myself a cybersecurity, uh, you know, legal expert uh, more than I would call myself a data privacy professional. I like that,
3: I like that designation, you know, Jamal, because I think you know it shows you've got more practical, hands-on. Have probably dealt with the adversary before, right? right. Where the, the data privacy piece kind of makes it, you know, seem like you just need to read the GPR, GDPR regulation. <laughs>
2: Maybe. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, you know, it's hard. It was hard for me in law school to uh, imagine competing with some of these, you know, young brainiacs that, you know, they've never been military intelligence or necessarily managed to access security program, but they maybe be great at contract law or drafting up, uh, you know, third party agreements. Uh, but, the, but the difference is it's very difficult for the mindset of a lawyer to also want to be a, like a CISSP or a GIAC certified professional as well. While it's not necessarily as far as a stretch for the lawyer mindset to go and get yourself the uh, data privacy cert. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And like the designation makes sense too. I mean, look, I didn't give it much thought, um, you know, when I first started doing the show and I had a guest on the show and I did some advertising on some of my personal uh, social media accounts and I had a few people that just jumped all over me because I called someone this cybersecurity expert. Mm -hmm. Now, they, they wanted me. They said, look, we do think that she's an expert, because I challenged them on it a little bit. And, then, you know, we do think she's an expert, but we think she's a cybersecurity legal expert. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get it, man. I get it. There's a lot of people out there with a lot of time on this, and they spend their whole career working at, you know, doing something. And they get very, very sensitive. Because is anybody really a cybersecurity expert? And I get that argument that nobody, it's right. like 12 different domains in cybersecurity and you can't be an expert in everything. So I can, and of course, you know, you're very, we use that designation very, uh, not very lightly, right? We're very, right. a lot of thought about it. So I appreciate the fact of where you're coming from with that. So having said that, you have this big intelligence background, you have this legal education. What is your approach to a cybersecurity program? How do you approach it?
2: Well, I begin by getting understanding of what their flagship product or service is, because that's going to help me identify their compliance exposure. And, you know, sometimes I say that and say, hey, aren't you trying to identify their risk exposure foremost? Well, no. After I identify their flagship product or services, what industry they're in, uh, their geography, who they do business with, who they're marketing, advertising to... uh, just a, the whole gamut of questions, then I get to understand their compliance exposure. And their compliance exposure lets me know uh, which laws, regulations, you know, acts uh, that, that they would want to comply with. And when I understand what they should legally be complying with, those laws and regulations ratify or point to a framework. So you can kind of imagine this hierarchical like structure in your head uh, If you understand this and then you know the law, the law points to a framework and the framework is guidance. You, you you don't com- comply with uh, a, a framework. It's not the law but you can adhere to it. When you adhere to these frameworks that are suggested by these laws, then you're more than likely meeting the reasonable standard of care, uh which saves your butt if you're ever, you know, in court for a a, a breach. Um so yeah, that's you know that that's my approach from from the highest level. What what organizations really uh, seem to be benefiting from whether I'm doing it for them or somebody else is someone who can uh, liaise with and create good communication between the legal department and the IT department and the auditors, uh, because not everybody's speaking the same language and not everybody uses the same justification on why you may need to have, you know, FIPS 140-2 encryption, at debt at rest and debt in transit, but also multifactor authentication and, you know, et cetera. And, the, the judges and the attorneys, they don't necessarily understand what that means, but they know what it accomplishes. So I bring that all together for all the parties.
1: Yeah, it's definitely amazing. I think everybody does uh, speak a different language when, when you're talking about the risk in legal departments, financial, uh, the, the financial departments, uh, the technology departments, and, and it all has to come together. Eventually, I think we have to speak from a common kind of risk as it is the cybersecurity. There's a huge compliance issue and compliance component to this, and I think uh, we talked about it in the, the last episode on what the role is of compliance in, the, in in this space. We try to get away from the compliance checklist, but it's still compliance is a big factor in the, in this space, and it does have a role. So, why is why is cybersecurity so important today? Do you think I like to get? I mean, we talk about this every, just about every episode, but I like to ask you because you have a very unique background and you're taking this from a different approach. So, why do you think it's so
2: important? Well, see, I think it's important for a number of reasons for a number of different types of people. So, you know, previously when we only had like wiretap laws and pay phones, uh, you know, the courts were trying to protect citizens from getting their, their privacy attacked. Um, nowadays, we have, you know, smartphones, the advent of IoT. Uh, there's just so much more data being made available. And the laws that we're supposed to be complying with as organizations, they're they're to protect the consumers, uh, the customers, the citizens. I'm not very aware of many laws that uh, are supposed to protect the organization or or their intellectual property outside of maybe preventing some sort of, I don't know, antitrust. Um, But cybersecurity and cybersecurity law, as they converge, is more important today than ever, because of the sheer volume of data that is, you know, either traversing the cloud or even in on-prem databases that can be used for crime. That's more lucrative than than physically robbing a bank. Um, so it's it's the new way to wage war. Um, it's the new way to conduct. Uh, you know mass criminal organizations. And it's also going to be the way to protect, uh, you know, the critical infrastructure that govern- governments harness to, you know, take care of their citizens. So I say this in summary that it's not necessarily important to small businesses that, smaller, large businesses that only seek to protect their intellectual property, because when it comes down to law, you don't necessarily have any laws that dictate to you, hey, if you're not protecting your, your patent well, oh, you're gonna be in trouble, but in contrast, if you're not protecting your you know, 25,000 consumers that shop on your website well, then you know, you're, you're in some trouble. So it's, it's important to the consumers, uh, mainly because the consumers don't necessarily know how to protect their own privacy, and unless there's people, governments, or organizations that are understanding and using good cybersecurity practices, then the consumers are going to be the victims. And they're in in the least well-postured positions to protect their own privacy, uh, let alone know how to exercise their rights. So is
1: cybersecurity more important to certain groups of people than others? Are consumers, should consumers be the most concerned about cybersecurity?
4: Well,
2: yes and no. Um, Consumers are at risk of having their personal information and their health information uh stolen, their identity stolen and used. Uh I mean there's some jokes about well hopefully whoever steals our identity gets a good job with their social and pays taxes and you know <laughs> builds in the retirement. But I think that the uh cybersecurity is becoming uh, more and more important to organizations that do business using a large number of consumers' information. Um, it's becoming important because of situations that you see like with Equifax, even the Office of Personnel Management, the government's being hacked. So it's, it's actually becoming so important that the, the presidential administration previous and this one is writing executive orders to create these fusion centers of uh, you know threat analytics and threat sharing that have never existed before, they find it so important that they're actually allowing, uh, as long as some PII is redacted, they're allowing the sharing of uh, threats and how organizations, public sector or private, are addressing the threats. And that hasn't happened before for, for reasons, uh, wow, such as, <laughs> well, that, that's a whole other discussion uh, about all the laws around why you wouldn't be sharing information either from private sector to private sector or, uh, but now that's legal, and it's also being shared with the government. And I think that's like if, if anybody wants to Google it, Executive Order thirteen six ninety three and thirteen six ninety one around private sector and uh, public sector data sharing.
1: All right, so there's a ton of information flowing around out there, um, and, and in the control around it, I think is questionable. You know, a lot of people uh, committing untoward acts with this type of data. Now, and you also have you also have emerging technologies that are constantly uh, being introduced into the marketplace without the thought of the risk that they impose to the process that they're being implemented to, and and, and so what is the increased adoption of say like an IoT, for instance, uh, you know, doing to data privacy and cybersecurity issues?
2: Well, it's making uh, a lot of organizations, a lot of of money, foremost. Um, It's also creating a lot of vulnerabilities that not only our technology is not prepared to protect, but our laws are not prepared to uh, address. So with, I mean, this this huge adoption of uh, the Internet of Things and um, smart devices in our homes, uh, we as consumers, even myself, um, an an admitted hypocrite, I enjoy the uh, like all the operational benefits of the, you know, the Internet of Things and the smart technology in, in my home. However, there's a there's a there's an everlasting balance between you know operability and functionality and security, and I found that to serve you know, go clients of mine or even anybody asking me a question best. I want to be, I want to be a yes man. (laughs) And it's kind of joking, but what I mean by being a yes man is I want to be able to answer a question like, Hey, can I do this, but also still be doing this. And if I'm able to be, well, yes, you can do that, but you would have to have stainless steel plenum and the red cables have to be six foot from the green cables, et cetera. If I'm able to do that, I'm able to help in a better way than just telling them no. So I bring that back to how Um, IOT is creating so much functionality and operability uh, that myself or we as consumers can become blinded by all the vulnerabilities that we're creating and all of the data that is able to be amassed uh, from one household. Um, So what the California, uh, the CCPA law is doing, um, it's to protect uh, consumers a California consumer. So what they're attempting to do is, is say, hey, consumers have no idea how to protect their own privacy and let alone exercise their privacy rights. So we, got, we ha- have to make laws around all this collection of data and how it's secured. But what, what doesn't really happen yet outside of maybe a, um, New York financial laws, like NYDFS, w- would be you don't see and I'm almost happy about this, you don't see laws or legislation or acts actually prescribing cybersecurity measures. So when even if somebody's a data privacy professional and they're, they're excellent at reading these laws or even writing these laws or legislating, that still doesn't mean that they're, uh, they have a good understanding about what cybersecurity professionals like us should be implementing to protect the, uh, users of, of IoT technology. And what, what they do instead is they point to frameworks. And who writes frameworks? Well. Academians and Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, or sometimes people like you and I or or me gets tapped.
3: So when's the conversation going to shift to, you know, incentivizing, you know, corporations and supporting corporations versus, you know, just fining corporations when things don't go right because they want to protect the consumer. Is there going to be a shift there? Well,
2: there will be a shift, but I don't believe the shift is happening well or well enough. I see, I see shifts in the form of incentivizing corporations to participate in the uh, data sharing under the executive order of 13.691. Uh, uh, if you participate, uh, you are not liable for any antitrust, you know, as long as you share properly and redact information. Um, so they're they're giving some benefits um, to doing things right. Uh, uh, so sharing ahead of time with DHS and FBI might make you, uh, or, or the FTC might make you less likely for the FTC to have to come in and use one of those twenty-year, uh, <laughs> twenty-year relationship uh, as part of the settlement. So there's, there's some incentives for doing things right in the first place, uh, as opposed to having to get a, you know, a, an order uh, in the back end, you know, in, in the form of a 20-year audit relationship with the FTC or fines. Um, but th- that question is, is really tough because I, I, I see it like we're raising this child the wrong way. You know, if if we want these organizations that control our, our data, uh, such high volumes of data, c- and control it properly, um, one, we're only addressing it, like, topically with data privacy talks, not necessarily cybersecurity technology talks. Um, and two, we're addressing it by punishing after the fact as opposed to, you know, in- incentivizing. And I'm not too aware of how that works. Um, it didn't even work well when I was a soldier in U.S. Army military intelligence. You know, when, you, when, you're, when you're putting together strategies, uh, you know, of, of even armed conflict, you're also aware of incentivizing good behavior as opposed to just punishing for bad behavior.
1: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. This is going to get really interesting in, in the second segment of the show. We've got to take a quick break right now. We're going to uh, transition into a commercial break. But, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family right away. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for much more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7. Get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, IT Security Program Manager at KAI Partners, Jamal Hartenstein. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
5: Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at ValleyMail.com.
0: Account takeover is the fastest-growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
5: With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru, Because at SOC Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from SOC Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three-quarters of the Threat Detection Marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.socprime.com with promo code RADIO2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com.
4: Promo code RADIO2019.
1: IT Security Program Manager at KAI Partners, Jamal Hartenstein. So, Jamal, what is the relationship between judges and lawyers and cybersecurity professionals? You mentioned before that sometimes I don't really understand a lot of the things that you talk about, and I actually get that a little bit, right? Dealing with some of the attorneys back in my uh, former uh, jobs. But what is that relationship? How does that work?
2: Sure, so the the laws can't keep, up, can't keep up with technology and technology can't keep up with threats. So since there's no way for the laws to keep up with the threats, it's becoming more and more up to judges and lawyers as opposed to you know, legislators and bill drafters to try to keep up with uh, all of these threats in cybersecurity. So what, the way it works is um, it's called well common law or you know, jurisprudence. So the judges and lawyers have to hear cases uh, oftentimes that the FTC might bring um, against an organization, and what's kind of discouraging is that there's a 100-year-old clause in the FTC about unfair, you know, practices. That they're they're instead they're reinterpreting, as opposed to writing new laws. Uh, they're reinterpreting laws that are hundreds of year old in some cases, and that, you know, that that's the relationship. So that's why it's discouraging, and um, you know, we need to have lawyers and cybersecurity professionals out there that are aware and can do a, a better job of uh, shaping these reinterpretations of laws that more than likely, if not definitely, were not written to address the type of cybersecurity issues that we're facing today. Yeah,
3: it's good, it's good that there's folks like yourself out there and folks that, you know, George and I used to work with that came out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, like in CSIPs, that you know were on the front lines dealing with these issues, dealing with the companies who are victims of breaches, dealing with the IR teams, law enforcement right, and helping this, you know, kind of understand how this stuff really works. Right. Right, so when stuff happens, you know, when they get in to have the conversation with a lawmaker, it's coming from a place of experience um, versus uh, an academic discussion, right? So that's, you know, keep, keep the good work up. Thank you.
1: Jamal, how big of a problem is this? I mean, it, you know, obviously you, you defined it as
2: an issue. How big of a problem really is it? Well, <laughs> in terms of uh, money and finance, uh, it's either a multi-billion-dollar problem, uh, which you can see evidence by the lawsuits that are being paid out in settlement fees, um, but it's likely a trillion-dollar uh, industry uh, with regards to all the different jobs that are being created by cybersecurity, all the different um, criminal masterminds uh, that are existing. Uh, the budgets for cybersecurity are increasing, and also, you know, you're your most well-known insurance companies are now writing cybersecurity insurance policies. Um, the problem is is not addressable or addressed just yet. So I say that to say, if I was to ask an organization, are you comfortable, are you happy with your, you know, pr- protective posture? The answer should always be no. You can't be complacent. You're, you're never ahead of the curve, um, and that's why, you know, you essentially have to be not only checking off those regulatory check boxes by understanding your compliance exposure, but also having those cybersecurity professionals, you know, cyber warriors on on your team that are communicating well with the legal team. Because when it all comes down to it, sadly enough, the judges, lawyers, legislators are shaping the way that our cybersecurity practice occurs. That wasn't necessarily the case ten years ago when when a CIO or a CISO could innovate, um, you know, more safely. Uh, and with their own liberties, but gosh, it's, it's a huge problem, it's a trillion dollar problem, and one way to get our heads around it is to improve education and training uh, and awareness. It's really hard to find a good qualified cybersecurity professional, uh, let alone um, you know, a, a legal team that can you know, harness and understand uh, the cybersecurity technology along with the data privacy and regulatory implications um but education awareness so people uh, uh, organizations are increasing their budget for uh, training and awareness and also CIOs and CISOs are increasing their budgets to hire more staff um and then you have third parties you get more incident response teams that are getting business so my answer is increasing training and awareness to try to get our heads around uh the, the cybersecurity.
1: On, let me talk, let me ask you about something that I think a lot of people confuse and that's data privacy and data security. What's the difference between data
2: privacy and data security? Well, <laughs> it's, it, they're two different practices. So, data privacy is the, like a body of law that uh, addresses the privacy of, of persons, of, of individuals uh, that, is even addressed by the, you know, the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, uh, you know, protecting against illegal search and seizure. That doesn't touch on data security. Um, it's it's an entirely different body of law. It's an entirely different practice. Um, it, it's a different position within an organization, even. So, data security isn't addressed as well currently today as data privacy. Um, well, well, why? One reason is because data security actually gets down to the particulars and granularity of how you are going to encrypt or, or vault passwords or employ multi-factor authentication um, or, you know, what you're going to be either tokenizing or having data at rest, data in transit, what type of solutions you're implementing. There's not there's not uh, anything outside of maybe NIST or CIS, CSC or, you know, different frameworks to address that. It, that's not written into any laws um, in, in in most states or most countries, definitely not GDPR or you know CCPA or even HIPAA's uh, technical uh, or security rule as opposed to privacy rule. So another example to answer that question is even HIPAA, which most people are familiar with, has a security rule and a privacy rule. They're not they're not one and the same. They're not addressed the same under bodies of law, and they're definitely not often the same uh, positions in organizations and that's why creating training and awareness is going to help uh, you know CIOs and CISOs and their teams un- understand the justifications about why they are having to for example i don't know employ multifactor authentication on not only their administrative elevated privilege users but anybody accessing the enclave remotely sometimes even on prem uh, so you know, but I, get, I hope that answers the question. Yeah,
1: so you deal with a, different, uh, a variety of different uh, clients in, 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 in different spaces and different verticals, both large and small, both in the government and in the private sector. How do they approach cybersecurity? Do they approach it? Do they have the same approach? Or do they all approach it differently? Or do you see any kind of
2: trends relative to any different type of sector or vertical? Right. Yeah. So they're very different approaches and there's no one size fits all. So... Smaller organizations uh, that don't fall susceptible to uh, like data breach reporting laws, for example, um, because they don't you know meet threshold limits, they don't have a certain number of uh, users that are submitting uh, you know their PII. Uh, they don't have much guidance. So you know, even I'm in California, so our, our attorney general, previous and, and current, try to be progressive and 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 define reasonable security, for example, or 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 define um, you know thresholds for data breach reporting, but there's there's a gap for for smaller organizations. So even the new CCPA, you know, if you're under twenty five thousand you know uh, data subjects, I guess is the terminology from GDPR that I'm adopting under CCPA might be doing it unfairly, but if you're under that threshold, you don't get the same type of guidance. So they have to have unique. Uh, solutions on, on that level. And then if you're public sector, you've likely never had to face scrutiny from these FTC, uh, you know, 20-year audit orders that, you, you know, the, the large you know, social media companies or even um, uh, autonomous driving vehicle or, uh, you know, ride hailing companies have faced. So the, the differences are this. when When I'm helping out a larger organization, in a sense, I have an easier time because there's so much legislation and law on the books that help me identify their compliance exposure. And then I get to use these frameworks and, 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 and identify uh, security gaps and risk analysis. That doesn't exist for these smaller organizations. And uh, there's the differences between public and, and, and private sector as well. Uh, with with what I mentioned, how the public sector doesn't face the same scrutiny of like FTC, for example, uh, they're, they're, they're also susceptible to, uh, the freedom of information act. So, uh, one approach that I might use for a public sector that I wouldn't use for private is, um, a, a maybe state or a federal or county agency would like to have their audit, um, under attorney client privilege. So, Instead of just going in as a cybersecurity auditor and hiring pen testers, a public organization might decide to protect that under the cloak of attorney-client privilege, hire a law firm, and then have the law firm conduct the audit. Does that make sense, how they're doing that for public sector? That's, that's, that wouldn't exist for a private sector right. organization because right. they're not susceptible to the Freedom of Information Act.
1: Yeah, because they have different rules. They have different approaches to things, and I think that makes a lot of sense you know, we talk a lot about blockchain on the show. Sometimes we do a whole episode on blockchain. Uh, we have people come in and talk about it and it gets the most play. Uh, I think uh, uh, that, and you know, criminal, um, talk about criminal organizations and cybercrime and things like that. So with, with blockchain, what, what kind of blockchain projects
2: are you most impressed with? And, uh, and I'd like to get your thoughts on why. Well, I guess the why should maybe come first. Uh, there there are so many blockchain projects and a lot of them are addressing different issues. Um, My favorite ones are the ones that uh, are abreast of the cybersecurity threats and even getting ahead of the curve um, with, uh, gosh, quantum technology, for example. Um, Quantum threats are not abundant yet, but for an organization to even be aware of it, cognizant of it. um, So I... I think a very formidable blockchain project is uh, called Cardano. And the reason why I, I find it unique is because they do something similar to what many of my colleagues and my cybersecurity professionals are already familiar with, which is using frameworks such as, you know, NIST or SAN, uh, CIS-CSC, which were, you know, formulated and developed by academians. Um, and most blockchain projects uh, that are not like Cardano are being developed by. um, Let me give them some credit. You know, some pretty brilliant geniuses uh, who are you know leading the way with their teams. While while Cardano is using you know game theory, uh, just you know academics from institutions around the globe. And they're getting the type of adoption from uh, countries and governments that, that, are, that need use cases solved for them. And um, I, I just think that the Cardano blockchain is one that, that is going to be able to solve, like solve real-world problems and, and, and needs and use cases uh, and create securities uh, that other blockchains aren't even addressing yet.
1: This sounds like something we should do a whole... Uh, segment on in a show so I'll plan that and maybe we'll have you back and put you on a panel if if you're willing to do that and uh,
2: I actually tried to submit myself for the California uh, blockchain working group I think uh, yeah each state is establishing a working group so hopefully (laughs) hopefully I'm one of those just remind
1: you know you just said California and we got a lot of data privacy folks listening out there because you're on the show is California CCPA the baby GDPR is that what is that what this is all about I mean you know, are they just trying to lead the way here in the United States, or what?
2: Well, well, no, it's it's not the baby GDPR. Um, <laughs> it's California's CCPA is more like the FCRA, which is the federal law. It's the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, GDPR and CCPA, and even HIPAA, they all have the letter P in it. And I, I like to tease and make this joke with folks, but. They all have the letter P and like, who keeps track of what that P stands for? Well, it's different. It's different for a reason. You know, GDPR is, is, is about protection. CCPA is about privacy and HIPAA, HIPAA is portability. That's for insurance companies. So to kind of like create some separation between GDPR and CCPA, uh, I looked down into all the exceptions, for example, like when, when, when companies don't even have to comply with a, a, a right for rectification or, or deletion, also known as the right to be forgotten. And the CCPA, what it does, it, it does more of a better job of giving consumers a right to know, just like the FCRA gives, gives you know, credit card holders, the right to know what's on the credit report, and the right to correct it. So there's more similarities between the FCRA and the CCPA than there are with the CCPA and the GDPR. The GDPR uh, focuses a lot on protection, in CCPA and CCPA, CCPA, not as much. CCPA does something unique, though, because it's going to give uh, a private right of action uh, you know, to sue to uh, private citizens. GDPR doesn't do that.
3: So... What do you think the uh, impact of the right to be forgotten is going to be on, on companies and building applications and how, how's it going to change? How's it going to impact folks in the business landscape going forward?
2: Huh. Well, initially I would think, and I had once thought that it's going to be uh, monstrous, disastrous, extremely expensive. Um, and huge organizations uh, have a lot to worry about. well, I'm, I'm, I'm changing my mind for two reasons. One reason is because of what uh, Google is doing, um, and another is because I've read very deeply into GDPR and, and CCPA, and there, there's at least nine exceptions to when you do not have the consumer's properly uh, drafted request to be forgotten. And out of those nine, I think... You know, Google's finding ways to be um, a trailblazer in helping the lawyers and judges shape their interpretations of the law, because that's what needs to happen. Th- these laws are written so vaguely and ambiguously and have so many exceptions, it's going to come down to jurisprudence and common law of the lawyers and judges that are hearing this case. And I think that not only are those, those, those nine exceptions, for example, that you don't have to comply with this right to be forgotten, but how is how is Google, for example, a behemoth, going to use those to <clears throat> to not comply uh, or 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 even even swim upstream, not even have to face the question of whether you have to comply because of how they're utilizing and interpreting those exceptions?
1: So. We have a lot of friends that are in local law enforcement, and we both have experience in local law enforcement as well as, as, well as federal law enforcement. And we know that a lot of uh, the local guys, they don't really pay attention too much to cybersecurity issues. If you go up to them with a cybersecurity issue or even you know, stolen credit cards and you know, financial crime, they'll automatically refer you right to the Secret Service or the FBI. Mm-hmm. Why is it important for local law enforcement to really understand cybersecurity?
2: Well, it's because within the data that cybersecurity protects, there is so much valuable information for our, our law enforcement. Uh, that's, that's whether you're you know, fighting terrorism using the videos from you know, iPhones after uh, an attack after a marathon, or whether you're finding what happened uh, at a uh, crime of you know, violence in, in your local area. So because the information that is, Available in uh, smart devices or, or IoT devices, like we talked about in the first segment, um, no longer does it is it enough for the laws on you know Fourth Amendment search and seizure to to you know to, to train law enforcement on all right well when can you search when is the evidence going to be admissible uh, when do you seek out a warrant so now there are federal and state laws uh, around. Um, data privacy and, and cybersecurity for law enforcement on how and when they should be uh, conducting proper searches that will keep the evidence admissible or getting a warrant. And these are relatively new. Um, and it's new because of now the advent of IoT and all the data that's on smartphones and et cetera, um, and, and cons, uh, private citizens or, or consumers Ought to be happy about laws like this, uh, or at least become aware of them, because what what it does it does good things for the law enforcement and for the individual. Um, It it sets out uh, the privacy that they have within their uh, their their cell phone, and it and it gives instructions to law enforcement on how they can get access to that if needed, which is articulating probable cause and a warrant from a neutral and detached magistrate, and you know those two factors or what allow law enforcement to get into a smartphone that they otherwise wouldn't have the same access to, like is as easy as, Hey, you know, searching of vehicles. Uh, then there's exceptions. I mean, I love the exceptions. That's, that's, that's where it gets tricky because just like there's those nine exceptions to why I wouldn't, why a company wouldn't have to comply with a right to be forgotten. Well, there's also exceptions to, um, when people have privacy of their smartphone. So as amazing as this, uh, these these cybersecurity or data privacy laws that are put in place to protect their privacy are, and as as well as they may give instruction to law enforcement, simple consent. Um, after law enforcement gets consent, it's really uh, it's it's easy for them to get the data that 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 they need. So I, I say that because you know it's great if you feel like you need to have the privacy, but you but consumers private citizens need to know how to exercise their privacy. Also, it's great that law enforcement has proper instruction now uh, on how to access, you know, data that is behind passwords and et cetera. Um, but also, it's great for
1: them remember,
3: remember, the old days, man? We're just worried about guns, drugs, and stolen cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, now there's so much more that goes into this, especially with the phones and the ability for law enforcement to get into these phones to get the right need to advance their their cases and people do have privacy rights right i mean rights against illegal search and seizure of their data by law enforcement and uh, obviously there's a lot of different um, statutes that a- uh, apply to this do you think uh, you do you think it's common for for law enforcement to get access to uh, an individual's phone or or their data in some way uh, because the, the actual the, the person doesn't understand their rights around their own data
2: Yes. Yes. And um, I, while I want to be careful not to share any opinion on that, uh, I, I think that there needs to be more awareness on how to act- exercise your rights as a citizen and how to do so uh, politely. Um, also, I really appreciate that there is so much data available to law enforcement to solve crimes. Um, but this goes back to, you know, the the awareness that we talked about in the first segment, you asked me how much of a problem it was. I talked about it's a trillion dollar problem, but how are we going to get around that? Not necessarily with throwing acts, laws, regulations, but training and awareness of, of, you know, of staff and of more importantly of, of just people who aren't even cybersecurity professionals. Um, (laughs) You know, understanding their data privacy rights and understanding technologies available to, to secure them properly. I mean,
1: so are you on the side of security or on the side of privacy? Should we, uh, be forced to give law enforcement uh, the encryption keys so that they can access data that they need to advance very, very serious cases.
2: And some, t- in some, you know, some of uh, cases it was terrorist investigations that they were. Uh, oh wow! Now all your listeners are gonna hate me and not <laughs> want to follow me. But this, this is when this is when the um, the military intelligence cybersecurity professional comes out. You know, I I never liked being at a forward operating base in Afghanistan and having one of my uh, Intelligence, you know, tools revealed on Yahoo front page. Um, so, for example, when Edward Snowden um, re- revealed, uh, you know, one of the ways that we were collecting, uh, you know, like telephonic information, um, I, I, I looked at that differently. Um, I looked at that as, uh, well. Sure, he. He revealed something that was violating the public. But the way I saw it, because the military intelligence uh, specialist came out to me, was, oh man, he revealed one of our tools to keep us safe. Now, I preface this with, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like me and this point of view, because I know it's a really difficult pill to swallow. And most people I interact with disagree with me and disagree with that point of view. Um, But also, most people were not either law enforcement or literally fighting in a forward operating base in Afghanistan uh, that became disappointed when one of their, you know, sources of intelligence was revealed. So that's why I have that perspective. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of sad that I have that perspective. Like, af- you know, after going to law school, uh, it, it kind of changed, and, I, you know, I-, I did become more interested in privacy. I-, I became a big fan of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, how it's, interpreted, how it's been interpreted. But you know, just and that's in my roots. You know, I I was only you know, eighteen years old when I first started. That having to adopt
1: that mindset. Our past experiences shape our shape our opinions about things and how we should move into the future. And I think that's commonplace. I want to ask you: How do you think these executive orders coming down uh, from the president
2: change the security landscape? Well, I, I think they're doing something that I think. I think our government has been attempting to do for a long time. And also what our government has been doing, except only internally, like in the form of a joint task force fusion centers. um, Some people would criticize the amount of intelligence that was shared between some three letter agencies uh, before some very prolific attacks on our country have occurred, for example. So these, these, these executive orders uh, that are uh, promoting um, sharing of uh, you know threat data analytics and um, practices of addressing them are are helping bring together uh, a sort of a, a fusion center amongst public sector and private sector, uh, and they're they're actually going to help create maybe for Department of Homeland Security or FBI. It's probably going to be DHS, but but a uh, a dashboard, uh, so to speak, and you know that's that's in the works. It's it's Googleable. There's information on the plans for a DHS dashboard. But the way that that's going to happen is is if organizations become aware of the the threat sharing under these executive orders and begin participating, as opposed to being forced after the fact uh, with you know 20 year audit orders.
1: All right, Jamal, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, IT Security Program Manager at KAI Partners, Jamal Hartenstein. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
5: Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com.
5: With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org
4: or Google CINET, Sinet. S-I-N-E-T.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force
1: 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest. IT security program manager at KAI Partners, Jamal Hartenstein. So, Jamal, what's going on over there at KAI Partners? What do you guys do?
2: Well, I'm trying to build an ecosystem for you know information technology and cybersecurity. Uh, It's kind of like a trifecta business model. We've got the co-working spaces we're releasing out private and and public spaces. We also got the academy in which we're teaching IT courses, project management courses, certified Scrum Master courses. we, we've got the, the Sacramento Valley's chapter of ISC Squared for a bunch of CISP-certified professionals to come meet up and get your CPE credits. And then we've got my, uh, we've got my IT security practice, um, which supports all the different consulting practices. And uh, my responsibility is you know, building up the IT security, cybersecurity practice for KI partners for, for the region. And uh, it seems like the company is even expanding out of state as well. Certified Scrum Master. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. That sounds really cool. I mean,
1: I mean. People in
3: cyber getting into IT. I love it.
1: (laughs) You go to this interview. So uh, what kind of uh, certifications do you have? I'm a certified Scrum Master. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So look, what what exactly, you know, uh, where where, where have you spoken? Where have you been published? I know you got so many things going on. I couldn't even read the list of degrees and certifications that you have. (laughs) I mean, it was like, it was so long. But uh, you do a lot of public speaking. Like, where, where are you at and where, and where are you going to be speaking next? What have you done?
2: Sure. So, no, with, with the alphabet behind my name, maybe I'm compensating for something. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, I'll joke on myself so others don't have to. So I, I, I like to speak at my uh, alum, so either for University of the Pacific in Stockton or at um, George School of Law for their data privacy and cyber law course. Also, um, I think it's IQPC is the acronym. Uh, Director Doreen Redis, she hosts events all over the country. Uh, I enjoy speaking there. I'm on the chair of the editorial board for CS Hub, cybersecurityhub.com. And uh, I'm really impressed with the articles that they publish, and I I liked writing for them as well. Um, Let's see. Where else? Oh, I was invited to speak at ISC squared's 2019 Security Congress in Orlando, Florida uh, this October. Very nice. Uh, Florida, October, uh, Florida
1: in October is very nice. Hurricane season though, isn't it? Hurricane season down there then? I think it is, but Uh still, (laughs) still it's good. How do people get in touch with you, Jamal, if they want to get in touch with you?
2: Well, Jay Hartenstein at KAIPartners.com reaches me. And, uh, with my smart device on my hip, I can respond to that at all times. So it's J-H-A-R-T-E-N-S-T-E-I-N at K-A-I-Partners.com. Maybe and I'm, 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 I'm rather Googleable, I say humbly and modestly.
1: So you're out there. You're not hard to find. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> All right, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Love to have you back, maybe on some panels too, um, if you're willing.
2: Uh, and can't wait to have you back on.
3: I love it. Thanks, George. Thanks for your service too, by the way.
2: My pleasure. i do it again.
1: All right, folks, before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub, the recap of tonight's show, and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty
3: out there.